This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. It's the first day of the general election campaign. Now that the two big political conventions are over, Democratic leaders from Colorado got some of the final words at their party's national convention last night. Just a few hours before Hillary Clinton accepted the nomination for president, Governor John Hickenlooper and House Majority Leader Chrysanta Duran each took the stage. Over the noisy crowd, the governor, a former brew pub owner, gotten a few jabs at Republican nominee Donald Trump's business record. I've never hosted a reality TV show But I know that the true mark of a successful businessman is not the number of times you say, you're fired. It's the number of times you say, you're hired. That's right. That's right. I'm the business guy. I am a business guy. But unlike Trump's businesses, my business didn't go bankrupt six times. Later, Hickenlooper got into specifics of how he thinks Clinton can help people who struggle to get back to work. I spent some time with Hillary And I can tell you, from a small business perspective, she gets it. Tremendous changes in our economy are making people feel that they aren't wanted anymore. And I remember that feeling. Many of the skills that would have been tickets to the middle class are no longer needed. That's why we discussed not only the importance of education and training, but streamlining regulations, expanding access to loans, incentivizing innovation, and how to support the transformation of new ideas into new jobs. I told her about Colorado's new apprenticeship initiative that allows kids to both work and to take classes that help them be more successful in their jobs. And Hillary Clinton understands that especially in these economic times, partnerships can lead to opportunity, which is why she wants to offer tax incentives to companies that offer apprenticeships in underserved areas. Now, she's going to make the largest single investment in jobs since World War II. And she'll cut red tape and taxes so it's easier to start and grow a small business. Hillary Clinton is going to work for the young entrepreneur who who wants to start a brew pub or launch a startup or even create a drapery business, just like her dad, Hugh Rodham, did all those years ago in Chicago. Now tonight, Hillary Clinton accepts the nomination for President of the United States of America. And tomorrow, we're going to get down to business. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper spoke at the DNC yesterday. As we have throughout these party conventions, we're airing selections from Coloradans' speeches. Now let's hear State House Majority Leader Chrysanta Duran, the Denver Democrat speech focused on her life story. She says she represents the opportunities open to minorities in the U.S. as a descendant, she says, of Native Americans, Mexicans, French trappers, and Spanish pioneers. Growing up, my family wasn't rich. In fact, my parents relied on food stamps for a time to get by. But in America, we don't define our value by our net worth. My parents gave me the name Crisanta, believing that in an inclusive America, it would not be a wall to my success. They encouraged me to work hard and get an education, believing that in a fair America, It would carry me anywhere I wanted to go. And you know what? They were right. Only in America 
could a shy little girl from North Glen and Arvada, Colorado, grow up to break glass ceilings and serve as the majority leader of the Colorado House of Representatives? So to every shy little girl or boy out there listening, I want to say, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from or how you got here, you are special and your potential is as big as America itself. That's what Hillary Clinton believes. It's why she's spent a lifetime fighting for every child, for a strong social safety net so no one falls through the cracks, for world-class public schools so education can be a great equalizer, for a government that respects and protects the rights of all people. So what we look like and who we love has no bearing on our opportunities. We are a country where anything is possible when everyone is included. And I am proof of that. I am proud to fight for a president who not only shares those values, she lives them. Colorado House Majority Leader Chrysanta Duran speaking at the Democratic National Convention yesterday. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump will be in Colorado in the coming days. Trump plans to hold a town hall in Colorado Springs this afternoon and a rally tonight in Denver. The Clinton campaign says she'll host a campaign event in Denver next week. We have more details on all of these events at CPRnews.org. The deadliest flash flood in the state's recorded history tore through a canyon near Estes Park 40 years ago this weekend. The Big Thompson Flood of July 31, 1976, killed 143 people and injured about as many. The event was immortalized in song from a folk singer named Chuck Pyle. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with Pyle in 2013. The song focuses on one of the victims, a patrolman, Sergeant Hugh Purdy. He died trying to alert others to the coming torrent, and his final words were broadcast over CB radio. We're going to talk to Chuck Pyle about writing the song in a moment, but let's hear it first. It's called Here Comes the Water and was recorded in our performance studio. Just about sundown, the wind got strange. Coming off the prairie like the tide Spilling down the never-summer range Old man wind on a nighttime ride Fireballs on the telephone wires Heat lightning all over the park Somewhere in the distance there's a fire The rains begin, it gets dark And there's three feet of water running down the street Picking up speed, picking up power There were the two rivers meet They say it went 50 miles an hour 
Nowhere for the water to go now but down Down, down the big Thompson it did roll Everyone in Estes Park and all around Listening heard pretty on the radio Thank you for being with us. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. The end of that song makes it sound like you memorized the police scanner traffic. I know it does, you know, but it comes out a little different every time I perform it. It's been great to dig it out again. I haven't done it very much over the years. The song is based on a true story. It is indeed. Of a highway patrolman, Sergeant Hugh Purdy. I have so many people over the years, I have memories of people coming up to me and saying they they had an outdoor barbecue with him in their backyard before he went on duty that night. I've had his daughter come up to me during a show. I've had his grandson come up to me during a show. But I know that that night, uh, he was told to seek higher ground. And when he ought to have been saving himself... He went to alert others. He did, and not only did he alert others with his bullhorn, which was going just cranking, I'm sure, but he was on the radio with headquarters the whole time. So he 
he um, was broadcasting to literally thousands of people who had CB radios because the power was out. Where were you during the 76 flood? I mean, it, it clearly had enough of an impact on you that you wrote a song about it. I was uh, uh, in Fort Collins. I had opened for John Prine at the Lincoln Center, and I was on my way back home about midnight. And I stopped at Johnson's Corners, and uh, their cinnamon rolls are still are famous, I understand. And I sat beside these two patrolmen. And over and over again, I kept hearing this story, and I started to write some notes down, including his last words. And so, and to have your last words broadcast. Yeah. I mean, to literally thousands of people. So I started to scribble down notes, and uh, then it was such an immediate catastrophe that I didn't play the song for a while. It needed, it needed some time. It needed some time. And... Uh, sometime later, I got it out, maybe a couple of years later, and I spontaneously added the dispatcher at the end of the song, and it really made the song. That's what raises the hair on the back of my neck still. What, what is the phrase again? It's Mayday Comeback. Thank you so much for being with us. It's just a great pleasure. It's really nice meeting you. Spilling down the never summer rain. Old man wind on a nighttime ride Fireballs on the telephone wires Heat lightning all over the park Somewhere in the distance there's a fire The rains begin, it gets dark and there's three feet of water running down the street Picking up speed, picking up power Folk singer Chuck Pyle, speaking with Ryan Warner in 2013. Pyle passed away last year. Forty years ago this weekend, the Big Thompson flood tore through Larimer County, killing more than 140 people. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Nowhere for the water to go now but down Down, down the big Thompson roll This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This week, thousands of people will descend on Sloan's Lake in West Denver for the annual Colorado Dragon Boat Festival. More than 50 teams from around the country are expected to participate, including several from Denver's Asian Pacific American communities. Denver author and journalist Gil Asakawa recently asked what it means to be Asian American in the United States today. Asakawa wrote an instructional manual of sorts for living as a Japanese American. It's called Being Japanese American, a JA source book for Nikkei, Hapa, and their friends. And we'll explain those terms a little later. When I spoke with him last September, he started by explaining the first statement in his book, I was a banana. He says it meant I was yellow on the outside, white on the inside. I find that first statement, uh, I was a banana, so striking. Uh, did, did people actually call you that? Um, people use that term in the Asian community. There's two. Banana, you know, is kind of an older-fashioned word. Yeah. Younger Asian Americans will say um, Twinkie, oh. yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And if you're Hawaiian, uh, Pacific Islander, or Filipino, 
the term coconut comes to mind and is used because you'd be brown on the outside and white on the inside. And it's a, it's really a term, a joking term about Asians who are um, so assimilated, so Americanized yeah. that we kind of lose touch with our roots. And and I was that way. I kind of grew up that way. Even though I was born in Japan and both my parents were Japanese, my, my dad is Japanese-American or was yeah. Japanese-American. But I, when I, you know, I grew up in the white American suburbs and didn't have Asian friends and we didn't go to the, like the Buddhist church or the Japanese Christian church. And so I was kind of, you know, I forget. Yeah. You forget about your ethnicity until, of course, somebody reminds you in a nice and, or not so nice way, you know, in a racist way that you, you, you ain't one of them. Well, give us some of that history. I mean, you were born in Japan and, and, and lived there as a child in the early 60s. Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then moved to the U.S. So how was that transition for you? You know, the transition wasn't really that jarring for me, partly because I was young. I was eight years old when I moved from Japan to the States. I was in third grade. And uh, my dad was born and raised in Hawaii. Kind of a long story, but he was in Japan uh-huh. during World War II and then, and then joined, uh, became employed by the U.S. occupation of Japan. Oh. That's a whole story I'm working on in, in, in a couple of different books. But uh, then he joined the U.S. Army and he was stationed in Japan during the Korean War when he met my mom. So my brothers and I, I have a younger brother and an older brother, we were all born in Japan. And um, although we lived off military bases in Japanese neighborhoods, we went to school on base. So I, I'd go to school with American friends, speak English, do the whole, you know, watch the the uh, the uh, Gemini blast yeah, off yeah. and, you know, stuff in space and then watched um, uh, President Kennedy, uh, the assassination, watch the coverage of that. But then I'd come home in the afternoons to Japanese neighborhoods and speak Japanese and play and and ride bikes with my Japanese friends. So I had a very bicultural childhood. When we moved to the States, it was pretty easy for me to accept my new surroundings. Partly, you know, when you're when you're raised in a military environment, right. you get used to moving a lot. Every two years type yeah, of thing. Exactly. Yeah. You, you may you, you you become good at, you know, making new friends and losing old ones. And so I made new friends, you know, and um we really did live in a very white suburban northern Virginia environment that TV show uh, Wonder Years yeah. was pretty much exactly my childhood. Now, did your parents try to instill in you uh, a Japanese heritage, or what was their view on it? They tried. <laughs> <laughs> my mom brought over all these the stack of books, um, primers, like uh, the you know Dick and Jane books for English. We had the Dick and Jane books for Japanese, and my older brother and I just refused to really pay any attention to them. And because we weren't connected with like the uh, Japanese uh, Buddhist church or temple. Um, we didn't go to Japanese school hmm. on the weekends. A lot of Japanese Americans in California, in Colorado, were raised going to Japanese school on Saturday mornings, which everybody hated. Hmm. But maybe it would have helped me. But uh, yeah, so my mom tried. I didn't think I was raised very Japanese, but in retrospect, you know, I look, think about it, and uh, at home we took off our shoes. Uh, my mom made a lot of weird, what my friends would consider weird food, which I thought was perfectly normal food. Um, we did a lot of things that were very Japanese, and I just didn't think about that. And that's part of the reason I wrote the book, is that yeah. I started to think about all these things that made me very Japanese, even while I'm very American. 
there's a revealing part of your book when you were doing college radio, and, and I got a kick out of it. <laughs> a country music hour, in fact, was yeah. what you're doing, and you chose a nickname that you, you say still makes you cringe. I'm going to have to have yeah, you say it. Yeah. You know, I was looking for the poster that I did for this. My show was called Crossroads West, and I played country rock, like the Eagles or Grateful Dead, those kind of things. And, and you know, Jerry Jeff Walker, 70s, uh, what would be considered country music today. And I used to go on and, and say, this is WPIR, Brooklyn, New York. My name is Gil Asakawa. The show is called Crossroads West, and I am your teriyaki cosmic cowboy. <laughs> and, you know, that was... I was thinking of my brand back then, I guess. It was my gimmick. But I really, I saw, I knew that I was a little unusual in that I'm this Asian kid <laughs> yeah. who came from the West. And, you know, in, in New York City at the time, everybody was listening to, like, progressive rock and Yes and Genesis and stuff that I couldn't just connect with. So I was playing all this kind of countrified music, and I just felt like it would be fun to create a persona. <laughs> well, yeah. But now I do cringe at it. I uh, It's kind of corny, and I, I wouldn't say it's racist, but it's a little bit unenlightened, I guess. But, Teriyaki cosmic cowboy. Your grandfather died in the early 1990s. Actually, my, my father died oh, in the early 1990s. Your father of, died. Of cancer. Yeah. And, um, and that's kind of what set me off on my, on my journey. So uh, when he was diagnosed with cancer, I said, so, Dad, um, you know, you were born and raised in Hawaii. What was it like being there for, you know, for Pearl Harbor? Because, you know, I, I love history. And I hadn't thought about my Asian roots, Japanese roots, but I love history. All my life I've loved history. And he goes, I don't know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? You were born and raised in, in Honolulu. He says, yeah, but your grandfather took us to Japan in 1940, and we spent the years, the war years, in Japan. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> so he went to Japan when he was eight, the same year, same age that I came to the U.S. from Japan. Yeah. You know, um, he was eight years old when he went to Japan. He spent the war years being teased as American spies. He and his mm. brothers and sisters, uh, and he went to Japanese schools. And uh, after the war, he went to work for the occupation as a houseboy. And then when he was old enough, he lied about his age and went to work, uh, joined the U.S. Army uh, to serve in the occupation. So um, he had this whole history that he didn't talk about. And that set me off on a search for my family history and my roots. And, and of course, you've written about Colorado and Japanese American history mm -hmm. as well. A, a camp, a camp Amanche, the the internment camp in Granada. How, as a Japanese American, do you deal with this time in American history, especially living in Colorado, where was there was that uh, internment camp? Uh, we have Amachi, which is in southeast Colorado, uh, just west of Lamar, and it is in you know a God's forsaken, dusty, windy place. And no offense to anybody who's from Grenada, which is right outside of the town of Grenada. Um, but at the same time that we had this camp, uh, the governor of Colorado at the time, Governor Ralph Carr. Uh, fought the uh, incarceration of Japanese Americans and said that uh, that it was unconstitutional. And for that, he gave up. He really lost his political career because of that. And this is a guy that was being spoken of as uh, a contender for a GOP nomination for president. You know, by 1940, he was really a respected governor of, uh, of, of the state, and he totally tanked his career to defend Japanese Americans. So Colorado has this kind of, of uh, uh, divided history of supporting, you know, he welcomed Japanese Americans in 1940 
before the uh, the internment uh, happened and said, you should come here. We'll welcome you. They weren't exactly welcomed, but they, a lot of Japanese Americans did settle here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Gil Asakawa. He's written the book, Being Japanese American, a JA source book for Nikkei, Hapa, and their friends. When we come back, we'll talk about who Nikkei and Hapa are. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's rejoin our conversation from last September with Denver author Gil Asakawa. This weekend, the state's Asian Pacific American communities will be on display at the Dragon Boat Festival in Denver. Asakawa wrote a how-to guide to being Japanese American called Being Japanese American, a JA source book for Nikkei, Hapa, and their friends. So Gil, who are Nikkei and Hapa? Nikkei is, uh, most people might know it as the Japanese word for their stock exchange, right? right? Um, Because they call it the Nikkei Index. Um, It's actually the word for different kanji, different letters. The same pronunciation, same word, is the word for all people of Japanese descent outside of Japan. So the the Japanese diaspora. And, you know, the, the most number of Japanese outside of Japan live in Brazil, and then Peru, and also the United States. Um, and, you know, a lot fewer all over Europe and, and other parts of the world. But it's a generalized term, and also in Canada. So when I say Nikkei, it's people in North America, Latin America, everybody. But it's primarily uh, Japanese Americans that I focus on. And um, Hapa are a mixed race, uh, Asians or Japanese uh, mixed with, you know, uh, Caucasians, African-Americans, Chinese, Korean, uh, and they are kind of distinct. They're treated distinct in in Japan. Certainly they're called hafu oh. or half in Japan, and it's a very, very pejorative word, and they're not treated very well. There's a great documentary called Hafu that came out last year. Uh, but then at the same time in the United States, uh, the hapa, and I call, I use, we talked a little earlier about how terms evolving. I now right. use the word mixed race because I've met a lot of mixed race Japanese Americans and Asian Americans who find the word hapa um, insulting, um, maybe racist. And it, it's rooted, it's a Hawaiian word. And Hawaiians generally think that they don't want anybody but Hawaiians to use the term because mm. it's a Hawaiian term for people who are Hawaiian and half European or half whatever, but it's a ho- they think of it as a Hawaiian term. So I, I um, think it's really important to focus on mixed-race Japanese-Americans because since the 1970s, the Japanese population in the United States has had the highest outmarriage rate of any Asian population, uh, uh, any Asian uh, demographic in the country. And you can point straight to the concentration camps, the, uh, the, the imprisonment during World War II. Oh. Coming out of that experience, a lot of Japanese American families, Japanese families, really downplayed their ethnicity. They left any concentrated Japantown areas, like Denver used to have one, and split into the suburbs, totally dispersed, assimilated. Assimilation was one of the the key, uh, I think, factors of Japanese Americans losing a lot of our culture uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It's just now starting to come back, partly because of 
mixed race Asians, uh, Japanese Americans, and fourth and fifth generation Japanese Americans being interested in their roots. Well, Sakura Square it, it still exists in Denver. It's a one block mm-hmm. development yeah. uh, around the Buddhist Temple, right? Uh, between uh, Larimer and Lawrence, and uh, I think nineteenth and twentieth. Yep. With all the new development and with you've, what you've just said, I mean, is there a place for Sakura Square to persist here? Um, yes, I think Sakura Square will continue to stay. It's uh, you know that area used to be the heart of the Japantown. Uh, mm. of the community here. Sakura Square is now what I, I jokingly call it tiny Tokyo because there's a little Tokyo in L.A. and there's a Japan town in San Diego, I mean uh, San Jose and San Francisco. In Denver, we have this tiny Tokyo, one uh-huh. block, a Buddhist temple, a Japanese grocery store, and an apartment building and some other businesses. Um, but it's still the center of our community. With this source book, Mm -hmm. um, did you write it because you felt that Japanese Americans are losing their heritage or losing their grip on on that? I don't think that there's like an active – if anything, I think there's an active uh, interest in especially younger Japanese Americans to regain their culture and their roots and their traditions. Why is that? Because they're interested in it. You know, because their parents – the – the first generation were called Issei. They were the immigrants. They were not even allowed to be Japanese American citizens when they came here. So they had kids. Their kids, the Nisei, uh, were American citizens by birth, and yet they were still tossed into these camps during the war. Uh, and then the Sansei, third generation, born mostly post-war. Um, in the early 1970s, the Sansei, that third generation, had the highest suicide rate. In their college years and twenties and thirties, of any um, Asian population, because of the trauma of their parents and grandparents being in these camps, and so what we're happening now is you, the youngest generations are now seeing that their parents and grandparents didn't talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. and so I think there's a, a great deal of interest uh, when I look at like the Denver Buddhist Temple and their Taiko group or the Judo and Karate groups that are in there. Uh, you see a lot of mixed-race kids, and you see a lot of younger-generation Japanese-Americans who are interested. So, Gil, what do you tell those young Japanese-Americans uh, who are looking for that, that reconnection? Uh, what I tell them is that they probably know a lot more about their roots than they even know, like I did. You know, like I didn't realize how much of myself was Japanese, even though I thought of myself as a banana, Yeah. right? I, I suddenly realized, oh, I'm familiar with all this food. I eat rice almost every day, even if we're having steak, you know, um, or hamburgers, we'd have rice. Um, for, uh, for Thanksgiving, we'd have rice. <laughs> and Japanese Americans, even today, there are certain things that are consistent, certain values, cultural values, family values, the way we think of our elders. These are all very Japanese um, traditions, and they have been carried on even if we don't realize it. So I think what, I, what I'm doing with this book is pointing out to younger Japanese Americans that they are already they, – they already have all the tools they need to connect with their, um, with their past, with their roots, with their culture – the one thing they should do, I think all Japanese Americans should go to Japan, visit Japan, because that's a really important part of reconnecting. And, and that was my next question. You know, going to Japan, you say that uh, it is quite the overwhelming experience when you actually land on that island nation yeah. and realize you're home, but maybe not yeah. home. I mean, it, it's an interesting uh, yeah. quandary. No, you look out at the airport and you feel 
really comfortable because everybody kind of looks like you. They look a little uptight and they're not really <laughs> dressed, you know, very casual. But they, everybody has, you know, dark hair. The women all have brown hair because they all are reddish hair because they all dye their hair the same. But it's this you look out and you see like yourself. You don't see yourself in mainstream American pop culture or even in most of our communities. You know, I go to L.A., I see a lot of Asians, and I go, yeah, you know, there's here, my wife and I, and I still do this thing of Asian spotting. We'll see somebody down the street and go, is that Asian? Yeah, yeah, it must be Asian. Is that somebody we know? You know, there's so few of us here that we like to try to try to connect with everybody. And in, when you go to Japan, you don't you feel immediately at home because everybody is like you. But it must be difficult since there is that language barrier and, and, and you may possibly stand out? Yeah, you do stand out because people, I feel like I can speak Japanese okay enough to get away with it. But, you know, street vendors can tell immediately that I'm American, so they'll make fun of me in the way I speak. Um, I know that a lot of Japanese Americans are not interested in going to Japan, and the number one reason is that they don't speak the language. And I think they should get over that and go. Because if you went to Japan, or if a, you know, if a white person goes to Japan, they're treated like royalty, especially if they know one or two words in Japanese. So Japanese-Americans, they, you'll, get, you'll be accepted in Japan. You just need to get over that fear. Gil, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Gil Asakawa is the author of Being Japanese-American, a JA sourcebook for Nikkei, Hapa, and their friends. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Asakawa is one of the organizers of the 16th annual Colorado Dragon Boat Festival, which kicks off tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. at Sloan's Lake in West Denver. Just ahead, cringeworthy kitchen disasters with James Beard Award finalist Chef Alex Seidel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And you're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Even the best chefs sometimes miss the mark. Julia Child embraced her mistakes on TV, and Dan Aykroyd lampooned her in the late 70s on Saturday Night Live. In this famous skit, he cuts his hand, blood sprays everywhere, but Julia remains calm. And you place the chicken on its stomach and cut along the backbone to the Pope's nose like so. Now I've done it. I've cut the dickens out of my finger. Well, I'm glad in a way this happened. You know, accidents do Well, when we learned that a Denver chef was up for a 2016 James Beard Award, sort of the Oscars of the culinary world, we just had to ask about his kitchen horror stories. Alex Seidel of Fruition was a Best Chef Southwest finalist. He's scheduled to be at the 2016 Crested Butte Food and Wine Festival today. I spoke with him earlier this year. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Nathan. Before we talk about failed dishes, uh, the kitchen can be a dangerous place, as we just heard. Are there any scars you could tell me about? You know, I don't have too many battle wounds, uh, but having those scars is pretty much a normality in the kitchen these days. So you never, you've never lost a finger, of course. You've got them all there. I have all <laughs> 10 digits. Do, do chefs at the top of their culinary game still have kitchen disasters? Absolutely. I'm in the process of opening a, uh, a commercial kitchen right now, and it seems to be a disaster as, as we're going. What do you mean? Talk about that. You know, it's uh, the fourth fourth place I've designed as far as a kitchen, and uh, it's never easy. Every place is different. 
Um, right now we're having equipment issues. Uh, we got sent a propane stove instead of a gas stove. And that makes a difference? That makes a difference because you can't use it. Oh. You know, and it just seems to me that you're moving from kitchen to kitchen to kitchen. Uh, do you have to learn different things per kitchen in that sense? Yeah, every every kitchen has its nooks and crannies. Uh, every Everyone has uh, – you know, it's just a, it's just different atmosphere, different environment, and uh, takes different skill to work work each kitchen you work in. Your restaurant in Denver, Fruition, which opened in 2007, is farm to table. Uh, Zagat has called you a local innovator and one of the quote truly pioneering chefs in Denver. I'm sure that doesn't just happen. Uh, you know, uh, experimentation must breed disaster. Is is there one that stands out when you were creating your menu for Fruition nine years ago? You know. Um, you know, I think uh, the menu evolution, it, it changes. You change as a chef. You, you develop new ideas. Uh, we're doing different food now than we were 10 years ago. Um, but we certainly had some disasters at the beginning of fruition. And uh, there was one in particular that comes to mind that basically ruined our show for, the, for a good hour. What do you mean? Um, we were, boy, I, I remember it being probably a 90-plus degree day. Uh, Friday, Saturday night, I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, if you've ever been to uh, Fruition, the kitchen is a shoebox. It's a tiny little kitchen, five guys huddled in there like sardines, and uh, we were working, we were all hustling through service and uh, putting out all our plates, and we kind of have a show counter uh, where all the plates are plated on. We put down a nice little white linen tablecloth Mm and... Uh, up above us, uh, there is a shelf, and on that shelf was a glass bottle of balsamic vinegar. And it got so hot in the kitchen that that bottle of vinegar exploded in the middle of service, drenched everybody with balsamic vinegar, <laughs> glass all over our plating surface. The food all had to be thrown away in the middle of service. The plates all had to be scraped and redone. Uh, it was it was interesting. And so, how does one recover from that? You've got, of course, patrons I- in the front of the house, and they can't know about it. They can't know about those disasters, so uh, they're not expecting anything but a nice plate of food in a timely manner. So it was basically just ripped down the line. Everybody shuffled. Every instead of plating and using their utensils to put food on plates, it was let's get everything taken care of, re redone, and uh, we kept going. I've read that you have zero rules in your kitchen saying, quote, rules are for children or for those who don't know any better. Why is that? You know, I like to think that, uh, you know, part of our success at Fruition and Mercantile, uh, at the farm, and now at Food Mill, our newest venture, is really about the people. Uh, we wouldn't have the success without the people that uh, make up all those places. And I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by a good group of uh, a good team. And uh, when when we hire for people, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for professionals. We're looking for people who want to make this their career. And uh, with that, you get people who are dedicated to the craft. And uh, for that, if you have those types of individuals in your atmosphere, in your culture, you know, hopefully rules are rules. You know, they're a little stuffy. And, and you, you say you have, of course, have fruition, mm-hmm. then uh, the mercantile uh, provisions and, and, and dining, dining provision. provisions, and of course the farm in Larkspur where you have animals and, and plants there. Have has that taken you out of your kitchen role? Has has the disasters maybe moved from the kitchen now to the back office? You know, uh, the last year of my life is certainly one that I've been looking inside of myself. Uh, you go from one culture of twenty five people every day and being a part of that culture and. Mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, being vested in that team every single day, six days, seven days a week. And then you split yourself between two cultures. Uh, so it makes it challenging. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, uh, certainly had my little bouts with, uh, my own, uh, I guess anxiety or, you know, taking that role from being a chef or being a cook, you know, that's all I know is cooking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I've done it for 25 plus years and now I'm kind of taking on different roles uh, with the restaurants and overseeing all the operations and uh, also working on advocacy and, and giving back to our community. So uh, do, do you ever, I mean, of course, you still get into the kitchen. Do you want to do that more or is it really trying to find that 50-50 balance? You know, it is good balance. I don't, I don't think I could ever uh, last on the line every Friday, Saturday night with these young kids, uh, 23 years old, that are, are running these kitchens. Uh, they do a great job, and uh, I don't know if I have the speed to keep up with them anymore. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're chatting with James Beard Award finalist, Chef Alex Idell. His restaurants Fruition and Mercantile are in Denver. Let's talk about the James Beard Award, named for the American food writer who championed this country's culinary heritage. You were a semifinalist in 2012 and 2013 for Best Chef Southwest, and you're a finalist in that award this year. What is Colorado's culinary style? You know, I don't know if Colorado has a culinary style for really? sure. I uh, I actually sat down with a focus group uh, two weeks ago, and we talked about this one particular subject. And can Colorado be defined by cuisine? Um, and I'm not so sure it can. I think uh, when you look back uh, to the wild, wild west, we were known for buffalo and elk and uh you know, cow balls. Yeah. So, uh, you know, now I think things have evolved a little bit and, uh, uh, we've developed as a, as a community with uh, good food and it's been. So, so we're losing this cow town image, you think? I absolutely think so. I, I think when I moved here in 2002, it certainly still resonated. Uh, we were meat and potatoes town and, you know, I still think we are, and I don't think we should shy away from that either. Uh, but certainly, uh, the palates of our, uh, guests have improved you know, have uh, evolved over the last five, even five years. Yeah, uh, We're serving different foods that we couldn't serve five, seven years ago. I, I was reading that you also can plate things differently and, and present them differently now that you've established yourself as a culinary uh, person here in, in Denver. Well, plating is certainly uh, an art as a chef. Um, that is where your creativity comes into play uh, once you take the ingredients uh, from its heat source or uh, and put it onto the plate, it, it certainly takes an eye and uh, some precision to make those plates look beautiful. So you're saying that we should probably not lose sight of our Cowtown image, in a sense. I don't think so. I think uh, it's part of our history and it's part of uh, our community. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we should ever shy away from that. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Chef Alex Seidel was a finalist for a 2016 James Beard Best Chef Award. His restaurants Fruition and Mercantile Dining and Provisions are in Denver. His farm is in Larkspur. I spoke to Seidel earlier this year. He's scheduled to be at the 2016 Crested Butte Food and Wine Festival today. Denver has a lot of public art. You'll find it street side, in buildings, and even along a popular trail where you can see a mural that has gotten national praise. CPR's art reporter Corey Jones met the artist. When I first meet artist Gemma Danielle along the Cherry Creek Trail, she hands me a compass, 
like the ones used in math class. In fact, this is the compass that I used in high school in my geometry class, and that's the one that I used for a lot of my drawings. Danielle has used this tool for nearly 20 years. Back then, she didn't like math, but now it helps guide her creative work. The artist even builds bigger compasses and uses them to create wall murals, like this public art piece that recently received national recognition. It's called City of the Sun, and I chose that title because the sun is shining here constantly, and it brings so much happiness to people to be feeling so much vitamin D all day long. A swath of blue paint covers a long section of the wall. You see a big gold circle that resembles the sun in the middle. It's a mandala, an ancient form of prayer and it's surrounded by smaller circles that look like stars. All of these golden stars or circles that are radiating are connected by a silver web, and this web of space actually represents our interconnectivity as people. Danielle also uses what she calls the sacred principles of geometry. She learned about them while studying graphic design in college, and the artist says they reflect the world around us. This is how our universe is constructed. This is the spiral of a galaxy, the spiral of a sunflower. It is the same proportions that your body is based on. Danielle spent more than a month on this piece last year. The city of Denver commissioned the mural along the Cherry Creek Trail for $3,500. That money comes from an arts fund that's part of a program to clean up graffiti. It also brings murals into places that don't often get public art. And when you get close to Danielle's mural, you see the detail she's becoming known for. This mural looks very fluid and full of motion, but actually it's made up of thousands of straight lines. Danielle says each of these straight lines represents a prayer she recited silently while she made the mural. Some were inspired by strangers she met. These prayers are for our community to receive joy. Prayers for the empowerment of everybody, for all of us to treat each other like brothers and sisters. The artist even invited people out while she painted during the blood moon in September. She hosted an event and asked her partner to play his Tibetan sound bowls. Ahmad Sawalme recently played them for me. Danielle says the bowls carry healing properties, and they too tap into the world of geometry. When sound vibrates, it becomes geometry. Americans for the Arts is a nonprofit that promotes art across the U.S. It honors the top public art projects every year, and this year, that list included Gemma Danielle's mural. Franca Dienolt was one of the jurors. She says the jury looked at a lot of murals, and City of the Sun was different because of the geometry and the meaning. Hers was really standing out because it went away from like being the painting on the wall, uh, what just shows people, and also it was not graffiti. Artist Gemma Danielle has a similar mural outside a coffee house in Denver. She created that one two years ago. Danielle says that public art like this gives the city an identity. Because it's not about, oh, that's Gemma's work. It's about, that's my coffee shop. That's my neighborhood. That's our community. That's how we relate to this space. Danielle says she had some help when she painted City of the Sun along the Cherry Creek Trail. The artist was four months pregnant at the time. She gave birth to her son, Jupiter, in March. Danielle says he's helped her to understand the true power of creation. He's made me really come back to the moment and look into his eyes and sit with that beautiful moment. There's nothing else more important. And Danielle says that's what she hopes her murals offer people, the chance to stop, 
and enjoy a beautiful moment. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. You can find all of our reporting on Colorado's public art at CPRnews.org. And that's our show. Thanks to audio engineer Michael Hughes and my director, Anthony Cotton. Also, my technical operator, Ted Coleman. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Have a great weekend.